Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Instagram or threads at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. If you're looking for a bit of extra help on learning your orchestra or solo repertoire, perhaps we can help. Visit www.thecellosherpa.com and drop us a line. We offer virtual or in-person lessons. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. In our last episode, we released part one of this fantastic conversation with cellist Desmond Hobig. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, I recommend starting with that episode before you listen to this one, because we're going to jump right back into where we left off. What advice do you have for students to help them perform college and orchestra auditions at their best? Can I say that those are two radically different things? Absolutely. Yeah. Which one to tackle first? Okay, well, so we've been just talking about college applications. I think the kids are already doing it, but part of it is we are a one-on-one working relationship, teacher and student. And to keep that in mind in the sense of how do you respond to a teacher how are you with strangers? Mm-hmm. How do you not be overly artificially eager, but how do you show that interest? How do you talk well? And to kind of in answering your question, I'd say, I'd say a high percentage of the kids who come and take these lessons for me six months or a year before the audition, I think most of them are already doing it. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen many who are either kind of frozen or disinterested. I mean, since you were a father of three children, you know those teenage years. And during those teenage years, sometimes they look at us like we're total idiots. Sometimes. <laughs> and they can also act kind of like, God, my parents forced me to practice. Yeah, I know they want me to go to university, but I don't really give a yeah. So these kids can come and just look at you like, I'm coming to have a lesson with you. But obviously they didn't really want to do it. Their parents told them to do it. So having a communication and engagement certainly is necessary. Yeah. I would say I ask all my students for a range of repertoire. So would they play a movement of Bach? Would they play an exposition of a concerto? Is there something else they'd like to play that they're excited about their modern work? I don't like them generally walking in and first playing etudes. I will admit that. Okay. So when you go and take the lesson with a teacher, I would plan that when you do that, you're doing pretty well for at least one piece, meaning I would want to make sure my students who go and take lessons, when they take the lesson, their first impressions matter a lot. Yeah. And so the very first thing they play, if it sounds confident, if it sounds ready to perform, if it sounds that they have thought artistically, that is much better than somebody who comes and walks in. I said, I started this piece last week and I'd like some help with it. That makes a very different impression for first impressions. Yeah. So I'd be saying... Be smart about your timing of when you do these lessons, that you have pieces that at least one, doesn't have to be everything, but at least one is in good shape. So your first impression that you play for the teacher makes the teacher say, hmm, I want to listen more seriously, Mm -hmm. rather than walking in 
yeah, my parents told me I got to go here and do this. And yeah, okay. Yeah, I kind of know this piece. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Very different first impression. So I'd start there. Besides that, do you like to play? Well, again, when that lesson happens, opinions are made very quickly by teachers. First impressions really sustain or last sometimes a little bit more than you think. Mm-hmm. And so really put, what they say, your best foot forward mm-hmm. at to start. In the actual audition process, meaning when you come to actually do the auditions, we all know how nervous you guys are. We know the fear, you know, especially when you have all the numbers sitting outside. So, for example, if I'd had a really good lesson with a student and I kind of said, oh, now this person is somebody that I want to watch out for. And they came in the audition and you could see the bow was shaking and that happens regularly. Yeah. So having had that good experience, meaning good first impression, we make some deferential jokes. We, let's say, try to calm the mood a little bit that they just don't jump in a play and run out. Because a lot of kids, when they get very nervous, they go faster and they rush, they don't breathe, and they just get tight. All normal. We've seen it enough times. So getting a sense that you make a couple jokes, try to put them at ease, give them the total flexibility about what they want to start with, hopefully something that they've thought about what they want to start with. So again, they put their best foot forward first. Yeah. But understanding that we're human, we have had the same feelings that they have. All of us have failed at some point. To succeed, you have to fail. That's how we learn the best, is from all our failure. To have the kids think that they have to be perfect is so wrong. And that's where it's, again, the engagement, partially because we're a small school. We're not a numbers school that we want to see people. We want to see artists. And I would say that for the audition. Yeah. Of course you want to play as clean as you can. Of course you want to. But that's a very different thing than the stupid, sorry, I did stupid orchestral audition scene. Sorry, I actually (laughs) did say that, didn't I? The North American way of doing orchestral auditions. Yeah. And the reasoning that's necessary is partially the numbers. Right. I had a student who just did the Berlin Phil audition a few weeks ago, and it didn't go his way. But the audition was Dvorak Concerto, Haydn D, and Schubert Arpeggioni Sonata. That's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, awesome. Huge amount of repertoire. really scary yeah but that was it no excerpts and that's a much more an artistic kind of venue to see how you create sound and shape lines and make music and the orchestra sadly decided not to move anybody on so he didn't lose it's just they just decided nobody was what they were looking for and you know that happens a lot in the states yeah so but in your question of how to help the students prepare for orchestral auditions i think it's very different than auditioning for let's say undergrad for for university because then it is about the numbers. It is about the hundred people. And I'm sorry, having sat on the other side of the screen for thousands of hours listening to auditions, I will say something that you don't want to hear. Sometimes after many hours, you're looking to see how you can disqualify somebody rather than looking how you can promote somebody. Yep. Meaning because you have just sat there for seven hours listening, which happens in auditions, and somebody else comes in and in the first 30 seconds, Three or four or five oopses happen that shows their nerves. Mm -hmm. In our auditions for undergrads, we try to make them at ease. We try to make them comfortable. We try to encourage. We try to say, look, we've been in the same place you are. In orchestral audition, you're going, okay, well, we're half an hour late already because the schedule didn't fit. So you cut somebody off after two excerpts or three excerpts before they even had a chance to really get warm. Yeah. So it's a very different feel that way. One of the things we do here at Rice is we do mock auditions. 
And so I have my students also do mock auditions for each other. So if you've done, you know, 10, 15 mock auditions and forced yourself back to back to play the extras back to back, the audition is totally different anyways, but it's not totally new. You've done this whole preparation of taping yourself and playing for people. So it's amped up to a higher level, but not radically higher level than what you've already experienced many times. Yeah. So taping ourselves is a huge deal. When they're practicing, I encourage them to tape themselves regularly and then listen back to it, play for each other. I do encourage all of my kids to get out of what I call the little practice rooms, cubicles. And even if it's late at night, play in a big hall. Mm -hmm. Just get there and you can take your iPhone, as you guys were talking about earlier, stick it in the back of the hall and play those excerpts and then listen back for space and sound. Because we all know in bigger spaces, there's a little timing differences, articulation differences that you have to think about to fill a space and to not feel that things get kind of muddy or scrambled or losing clarity. Yeah. One of the things I tell my students is the whole sense that, again, sorry, first impression. If you play a great concerto, there's more chance that they might give you a little latitude on a goof up. And I can jokingly say that when I was very lucky to win the principal Cincinnati, I actually was playing Prokofiev Fifth Symphony, the last movement, and I actually mm-hmm. fell off the fingerboard in the audition which a lot of people would just probably think they just kind of give up at that point. And I think a couple of people laughed behind the screen, but I just played it again a second time yeah. and I was lucky enough to win the job. So you can't be perfect, but hopefully you start decently well. And that's what I'm meaning. Like when you really feel you have a strong concerto that sounds with personality and all the nuance and natural and, and all that type of stuff and clean and, there's a little latitude that can be given. So I do challenge my students to put a big care on the concerto and how it sounds like a soloist. Yeah. It's also the only place where you can truly express yourself how you want versus the rules more or less you have to follow in certain excerpts. Depending if it's section audition or principal cello or or a title position. Yeah. I do encourage my students to do a portion of that individuality in the solo excerpts. Mm-hmm. Many times nowadays, they're asking for Don Quixote. And yeah. so that is just such a pleasure to play. And I really challenge them to explore the limits of, say, what they can do artistically through that. So what you're saying is absolutely correct. You know, when you play Beethoven 5, there are just so many, what I say, expectations through all the performances and all the teachers and all the recordings that you're not in a straitjacket ever. But you cannot be as expansive and creative without having somebody behind the screen be tapping away and you find out that you're not in perfect rhythm or you're choosing to be artistic about your dynamical timings. You know, those things don't work in Beethoven five. Yep. So true. (laughs) Well, this is extremely helpful. It's so great with your amazing variety of experience that you can talk about, not only the college experience and the orchestra experience and really give people fantastic advice on how to prepare for these different eventualities in their career. Is there anything else we might have missed that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I think to go a little further in the orchestral auditions, because I'm seeing many of my kids do it, Mm -hmm. obviously confidence matters a ton. Obviously. One of the things I ask all my kids, because it helped me, it was actually an epiphany for me before the Cleveland audition, is you kind of ask yourself, who are we under stress? 
do we shine? It's kind of like when you, I do enjoy sports. And so when you hear these great sports stars talking about how they like adversity and they shine under adversity, and then you have some other people, because I'm actually a pretty insecure person naturally, who can go a little bit into a box or hide in the shadows a little bit. Mm-hmm. So talking, and I found out from my upbringing, again, who has both of us being parents, we kind of look at our own childhoods and aspects of ourselves through that and asking yourself, are there things about you that could, under adrenaline stress of a moment, not give you the confidence to enjoy the adversity and push and trust yourself? So I found out that I can get pessimistic at times. Mm-hmm. And under a stress, I will be negating and listening to all my mistakes rather than being in the moment, as they say, sports-wise, being in the zone, staying positive, and enjoying what you're doing. And I tell all my students nowadays, we have so many iPhones, iPads, and taping qualities. You don't need to notice all the mistakes you play because you're going to hear them later in the stupid iPad. So be (laughs) thinking about the music. Think about the line. Think about your love of sound and what you want to say, what's coming up rather than what happened before. Yeah. So my awareness of my natural negativity from my upbringing made me fight it and say, no, I don't want to be that person. I want to be more positive. I want to enjoy and noticing through all the, again, the experiences I've had and the ability to perform quite a lot, realizing how that interaction with audiences is much more important than somebody coming back and said, I heard only two notes out of tune. Who cares? (laughs) So I think I've changed, and I think that was quite an epiphany for me. So what this long-winded thing is, is in talking to the students, what will make you feel strong? What will make you absolutely say, I'm ready to go? And for them to say it, not for me to say it to them, Mm -hmm. for them to say it. And a lot of it is, I think, this experience, a lot of them is to kind of look into themselves. And there are many books nowadays that are out there for performing anxiety, for inner game of tennis, all these sports things. I actually find them very useful. And I've given them many times to my students to kind of say, think about yourself. And they call, are you a strong performer? A lot of us think we're strong. And then when it actually kind of comes to it, as I said, childhood tendencies kind of seem to creep in. So dealing with that before they go into the audition and realizing what will make them really feel strong. Yeah. And one of the things you know from auditions is if we're going to have 50 people, you may go into a room with 20 other cellists practicing all these excerpts at different speeds, different dynamics, playing differently. And that can be very distracting and can make you kind of question, am I doing it correct? Yep. And that's where I'm saying having a very strong mental belief, because auditions in the end are all, in my opinion, mental and emotional. Yeah. Yes, you've got to do the preparation. The preparation is a total marathon, and it takes a long time. But that whole preparation, you have to, as I say, look yourself in the mirror and say, I've done everything I can. I'm ready to go. I know I'm going to have adversity and adversity is going to be at the audition moment. But adversity is going to be the hour and a half before the audition where there's so many other things going on that can take you out of your zone. And so having a little bit of a tough mindset of, I would say, not making buddy buddies with everybody before the audition, but just (laughs) going in focused as to what I need to do. Yeah, I had an old girlfriend 30 years ago who would go in wearing headphones and be listening to heavy metal before the audition because she didn't want to hear any other violas playing anything else that would distract her. She's like, I've done my work. I'm ready to go. I can lay it down at this moment. 
And she didn't want to have any noticing things that kind of makes her question. Being mentally strong, being positive, realizing that you don't critique yourself as you perform. There's enough videotapes and tapings out there that you can find out later. But be always thinking ahead. What am I saying musically? What am I trying to create? Trusting your body, letting your body do what you've done 60,000 times in the preparation marathon for an audition. I think if our head gets in the way too often, and we try to critique things as we perform. That's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. You really have to just let it happen. Yeah, that's really important to think about that. And I think that that's part of the shift that comes because when we're practicing, we're so programmed to pick at everything. Yes. And there has to be this shift when you get close to the audition. You just said a good thing. To be. You just yeah. said a good thing. Absolutely. It's in the practice room or where you practice. You need to make that shift a few weeks before and kind of start saying, okay, I'm going to critique for now, but now I'm going to be performing these and just see how I enjoy them. Absolutely correct. And you're going to switch your percentage of practice time from critiquing practice to more and more performing practice. And then it's just little kernels of ideas once in a while that you notice rather than everything you noticed before. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. That transition happens as you get closer and closer to the audition. It does not happen at the audition. That's too late. Yeah, that's true. And I used to listen to, I had a CD of Josh Bell playing Mozart violin concertos. And I found that if I put them on, I wouldn't be tempted to talk to people, There you go. which was always troublesome. Yes. And it kind of calmed my aura down before I went out to focus. See, so. see, you're the one who should be talking about this. That is a perfect thing that you found that helps you. Yeah. Because it's all unique to each of us. Everybody is unique. Part of this whole audition process is finding out what makes us happiest. Yeah, so true. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Well, Joel, great to talk to you. Very nice to meet you and wish you good luck with things. Thank you so much to Desmond Hobig for joining us today and sharing his story with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on Desmond and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview cellist Stephen Doan. We talk about his experience teaching at the Eastman School of Music for the past 42 years and performing as a soloist, chamber musician, and principal cellist of the Milwaukee Symphony and the Rochester Philharmonic. We're here to serve you. So if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was edited by Eric Begay at Red House Productions and produced and recorded by me, Joel Dallow.